your Bible to Psalm number 139. Uh, Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And as such, before we get into the particular portion of Scripture that we're going to cover today, um, let me give a little bit of a preamble uh, that uh, the sanctity of human life is a difficult topic. Um, Not because it's difficult to navigate. The church has really not had a complicated position on it. Uh, but sanctity of human life is a difficult topic to, to, to preach on because it is so close to so many people um, that chances are, whether you know it or not, you probably know someone who has had an abortion. Um, statistically, someone in this room may have had an abortion. Um, I want you to hear your pastor say at the very outset of this sermon, I am not standing up here to tell you because you had an abortion or because you know someone who had an abortion, because of that abortion, that person is going to hell. Please, do not hear me saying that. Is it possible that someone could go to hell for a sin? Yes, in fact, everyone who has ever gone to hell has gone to hell for a sin. Um, But um, the reason they go to hell for that sin is because they did not repent and appropriate the grace that was offered to them by God. I want you to hear your pastor say with all of the compassion that I have in my heart, if you have had an abortion or if you know someone who has had an abortion, the grace of God is there for you. The love of this church is here for you. We want to grieve with you. We want to grieve for you. We want to be there to love you. We want to be here to comfort you. I do not want you to think that I stand up here as your enemy. It is not flesh and blood that we struggle against. It is Satan and the forces of evil that we struggle against. And I tend to believe that the majority of people who have aborted a child, or who have, I don't know that this is even legal in in the United States of America, um, committed a loved one to euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. Um, I think the majority of people who have done that have been deceived um, by various uh, turns of phrase and use of language, um, the most common of which is what we're going to be tackling today. And it's the question, is it a human? that this is the core question that we as Christians, not just we as Christians, but really anyone as a human being has to answer when discussing whether or not we should end the life of another organism. Is it a human? Now, that is not a universal way to stop Someone from making a decision. In fact, I'm kind of making this a tradition that um, I'm going to read some of these probably every year just to put what abortion actually is in perspective. That these are a few quotes from Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. I read a few last year. I don't know that I got all of these. There are seven of them. I will read them quickly as they're all relatively short. I warn you. They are shocking. 
This is the founder of Planned Parenthood, who, by the way, very much believed that unborn children were humans. This is what she says in a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble on December 19, 1939, in which she exposited her vision for the, quote, Negro Project. Listen to this. This is Margaret Sanger. It seems to me, from my experience, that while the colored Negroes have great respect for white doctors, they can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstitions, and doubts. We should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. She literally wanted to abort black Americans out of existence. Second quote, 1926. I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I saw through the door dim figures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose, and a dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. It's the founder of Planned Parenthood. In Pivot of Civilization, this is a, a, a book she wrote, she was talking about immigrants, the poor, and the era of philanthropy, according to Life News. This is the quote. They are human weeds, reckless breeders, spawning human beings who should have never been born. Organized charity itself is the symptom of a malignant social disease. Instead of decreasing and aiming to eliminate the stocks of people that are most detrimental to the future of race in the world, it tends to render them to a menacing degree dominant. Really, what we should do for humanity is we should kill these people. They're, it's like weeding a garden, y'all. That's what she said. This is Margaret Sanger on birth control. And for her, birth control, by the way, is, is not preventing a, a, a pregnancy. It is controlling a birth, by the way. Uh, in her writings from morality and birth control and birth control in the new race, this is what she says. Knowledge of birth control is essentially moral. Its general, though prudent, practice must lead to a higher individuality and ultimately to a cleaner race. Birth control is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defective. Five. This is from Pivot of Civilization as well. Our failure to segregate morons who are increasing and multiplying demonstrates our foolhardy and extravagant sentimentalism. Philanthropists encourage the healthier and more normal sections of the world to shoulder the burden of unthinking and indiscriminate fecundity of others, which brings with it, as I think the reader must agree, a dead weight of human waste. Instead of decreasing and aiming to eliminate the stocks that are most detrimental to the future of the race and world, it tends to render them to a menacing degree dominant. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. 
The main object of the Population Congress would be to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring to give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. She argued in 1934 that it should become necessary to establish birth permits, saying, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically, delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just marked when they're born. That, to me, is the greatest sin that people can commit. And then finally, she said, but for my view... I believe there should be no more babies. I, think, I should think instead of being impractical, it really is very practical and intelligent and humane. That women in developed countries have progressed beyond the fact of being mothers, that we have, we have, we've gone past that. Those were the motivating thoughts behind the mind that founded the largest abortion mill in our country. She believed they were humans. She just believed that they were worthless humans. Since then, the public discourse has so changed that people realized, wait a minute, a human is a human. There is no such thing as a worthless human. So since then... The lobby that aims for the right to abort has decided to say, well, they're not humans. So we as a church have to make a moral argument to the contrary. That abortion is in fact wrong because what you're killing is a human. Euthanasia is in fact wrong because what you're killing is a human. So, in Psalm chapter 139... Verses 13 through 16. If you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, we will talk about the most pressing moral question on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Is it a human? Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and my soul knows that very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Father, I pray that we would approach this with compassion for those who have been deceived and heartbreak for those who have been lost. Help us to leave here today valuing human life and, Lord, understanding that you value it more than anyone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The ultimate question that we have to ask when determining whether abortion is morally okay or morally evil is whether or not the product of conception is a human or something else. The reason that this is the most important question to ask, and this applies to euthanasia as well, is if someone is a human, then killing them is categorized as what? Murder. If something is not a human, then killing it is categorized as what? 
We talked about it in Sunday school that we're, we're human beings made in the image of God. Right? Genesis chapter 1. That when God created us in verse 127, God created man. And you can look at this as on your handout. I got there a little bit earlier than I had imagined, but here we are. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the fact that we are created in the image of God means that we are valuable, right? So if someone is a human being, they bear the image of God. Nothing else in creation is given the distinction of being created in the image of God. Nothing else. Any of y'all ever watched Animal Planet or, or maybe, maybe PBS and you see one of those animal documentaries, right? When you see a lion kill a lion, what do you say? Somebody says, oh, you know, you see a lion, kill a lion. None of you have ever said, oh, my gosh, somebody arrest that lion for murder. You've never said it, have you? No. Uh, what about if, 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 if a dog, if a stray dog kills another stray dog? Do you, do you accuse that stray dog of murder? No. Why? Because the lion killing another lion is just a lion being a lion. That's just what they do. A dog killing another dog, that's just what they do. They don't have a concept of moral right and wrong. They don't have a concept of reason. They're just instinctively acting. They're animals, but human beings are something different, aren't we? We understand that there is something right and wrong, and sometimes, ever since the fall, sometimes we think wrong is right, and sometimes we think right is wrong, but just because we sometimes get our poles mixed up doesn't mean that we don't understand that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and that right should be done and wrong should be avoided, correct? Well, that means... Whether or not something is a human being makes a big deal to us. Because whereas we would never arrest a lion or a dog for murder, we will arrest a human being for murder like that, won't we? Instantly. Because we know intrinsically, if you kill a human being, you have committed a grave, grave offense. It makes us uncomfortable. That, that, that's why violence bothers us. That, that the destruction of a human life is is gut churning that is something you just don't want to see you don't want to hear about you, just, you don't want it to happen because there's something about a human being that is different and Genesis 1 tells us that it's the fact that we're made in the image of God and we should see the unborn as works of God made in his image from the very first moment look at verse 13 actually look at 13 through 15 the psalmist says, now I want you to pay, in reading these verses, particular attention to the pronouns. Let's have a brief English lesson, okay? So my name is Josh, right? Every time you speak of me, I don't know how much you talk about me. This might be a little self, self-centered you know, illustration here, but anytime you speak of me, you don't always say Josh, do you? You, don't say, you, you might say it initially, say, hey Josh, how are you doing? Say, hi, how are you? So, but then if you, if you talk about me to someone else, you don't always go, well, Josh is my pastor, and Josh went to the store, and Josh bought this, and then Josh went home, and then Josh cooked this with what he bought. You would say, Josh is my pastor. He went to the store. 
When he was done, okay, so, so a pronoun is just a shorter, more convenient word that we can use to refer for a, to a proper noun that's either understood or, or mentioned earlier in the sentence. So anytime you see a pronoun, you've got to figure out what? Who the pronoun is referring to. It can make a big difference, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're in a court trial and somebody says, he did it, the question is, who is he? You know, the, the object of the pronoun gives the pronoun its meaning. So in verses 13 through 15, I want you to pay close attention to the pronouns because as soon as we're done reading them, we have to identify who these pronouns are. That's going to give us some meaning. So verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, in that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. So, reading this... And examining these pronouns, who is the you? That would be God. God is the one forming the other pronouns' inward parts. God is the one covering them in her, his mother's womb. God is the one to be praised. God is the one who made fearfully and wonderfully. God is the one whose works are marvelous. God is the one whose frame was it was not hidden from. God is the one who made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. So whoever this other pronoun was, God's the one who's responsible for making them. Repetition in Scripture, scripture is generally a way to convey importance. So if, you, if you're ever studying your Bible at home and you see something repeated over and over and over again, that's a biblical author's way of driving home to you, pay attention to what I'm repeating, it's something you need to know. Look at how many times the author of this psalm points out you, 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 you. In other words, whatever it was that God is forming, we haven't gotten to the other pronoun yet, Whatever it was that God is forming was deliberate. It was orchestrated. It was designed. It is not time plus matter plus chance. We were talking in the men's Sunday school class this morning that the atheistic view of creation, which is not really creation to them, is almost like you took the Big Bang and then if you could put all of the, everything that came out of the Big Bang in a Pepsi bottle and shake it around for 7 billion years magically over time you seem to get an earth full of life forms that it's just random chance and random occurrence that somehow ended up ordered life now i don't know about you but that doesn't make sense to me when i look out at the world i see order not chaos i see design not randomness i see beauty not confusion so Whoever or whatever it is 
that is the other pronoun in this passage, God designed it and God made it and God worked it and God shaped it. And he meant it to be what it was. So let's look at this other pronoun. Who is the me? Who is the my? Who is the I? They're all the same subject. They're the psalmist. They're that person. So here's your application question. If an unborn person or a person laying on a hospital bed who's being debate, who's debating physician-assisted suicide, if they're not a human, what are they? If they become human, when does that happen? Does an unborn child become a human based on location? Are they human outside the womb, but not human inside it? You know, what, what changes in that short geographical distance between a womb and a crib? What, what changes about them physically, genetically, scientifically? Nothing does. Their genetic material is exactly the same, no matter what location they're in. Is it ability-based? Does an unborn child become a human whenever they're... Heartbeats? Do they become a human when they can see? Do they become a human when they can move their hands? Do they become a human when they can walk? What about when they can talk? Do they become a human when they can read? Do they become a human when they can cook dinner? Do they become a human when they can hold down a job? See, it's all subjective. You can't give me any scientific defining factor that says that it was a human then, it wasn't a human then, but it is a human now. Does this work in reverse? Be careful with this logic. If you say, well, wait a minute, uh, this, this child, have you, have you read any of the bills that say, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pain capable abortion bills? Basically, say it's, it, you, you can't commit abortion beyond this point because at beyond this point a child can feel pain. Have y'all seen any of those bills? Now I'm for any bill that will prevent abortions. You know? Yeah, I, I would prefer a bill that said abortions are illegal on days that end in why. Yeah, I want one of those. But does the ability to feel pain, is that what makes you human? What about someone in a medically induced coma in a hospital bed? They, they can't feel pain. Does it work in reverse? Are they not human anymore? Be careful making this argument. Is it based on the preference of the mother? If you take two women who are two months pregnant and one of them wants the baby and the other one doesn't, is one of them carrying a human and the other one not? Is that what makes a child a human? These are logical arguments. These are not... Scriptural arguments. The scriptural argument is not nearly so complicated. The Bible's answer to what an unborn child is, is just that. They're a child. They're a human being. The psalmist said in verses 13 through 16, this was not something in my mother's womb that would become me. This was me. 
This was my frame. This was my body. These were my inward parts. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I was made in secret. I was wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And the lowest parts of the earth is just a poetic way of saying the secret place. Some of your Bibles might actually even say the secret place. Just a place where nobody, nobody else could see. The advent of the ultrasound machine is incredible because it allows you to see something that for thousands of years of human history, only the eyes of God saw. This is a straightforward statement by Scripture that the unborn are human beings, persons made in the image of God, because when God makes humans, He makes them in His image. There is no such thing as a liberal Christian position and a conservative Christian position on abortion. There is only what God has said, and His Word says that the unborn are people, and that changes the moral calculus about what can and should be done with them. There is no such thing as a liberal Christian position that says, well, I just, I believe nobody should tell a woman what to do with her own body. Let's talk about that. You don't, first off, you don't believe that. Nobody, nobody in here believes that a woman should not be told what to do with her own body. Oh, and some of y'all are like, oh my goodness, pastor, what are you saying? Let me ask you another question. Do you believe that a woman should be allowed to walk down the street outside your house naked at any time of day she wants to? No, I thought you just said you want, you thought nobody should tell a woman what to do with her own body. What if she wants to do that? Can she do that? Well, no, I don't want her to do that. See, I told you you didn't believe it. Second part of this equation is, y'all, it's not her body. It's not her body. Who did, who, whose body did the psalmist say God was forming? It was his. It's a separate life. It's a human life. That is sacred. How do I know how much God values a human life? Well, first I know how much he values human life by the second verse I put on your handout. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The reason that such a thing as the death penalty exists for murder is because God says a human life is valuable in a way that no other life is valuable because a human life is made in my image. We talked about this in Sunday school. Have y'all ever seen in the movies where somebody's sitting in this this smoky room in some back area and they've got a dart board up on the wall and there's a picture of somebody on the dart board and they're throwing darts at it. What does that say about the person on the dart board? The person throwing darts really doesn't like them, do they? Well, they can't throw darts at the actual person, so what they do is they throw darts at his image. When we deface whether it's by assault whether it's by abortion whether it's by euthanasia whether it's by anything we do when we deface someone who bears the image of God we create we do a great we, we commit a grave offense because we hurt someone we destroy or deface someone something that was made in God's image so that's one way we know that 
God values human lives and hold them to be sacred. But there's another way. We know that God values human life because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That your life is valuable enough to God that he gave his son's life to save yours. Now y'all, I'm going to be honest with you. And I will say this boldly because I know every single, I would expect every single one of y'all to say this about me. I love you. But it would be real hard for me to trade Margaret for any of you. Emily and I, I'm going to get upset, I'm going to make it. Emily and I had a very real conversation one day. And we looked each other in the eye and said, if you ever have to choose between me and that child, you save her and don't look back. And the reason we said that is because if Emily were to save me in front of Margaret, I don't know if I'd ever get over that. And the same thing from her perspective. Why? Because the love for that child is so deep. Now understand that I am a human being with a finite depth of love and emotion and care. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for a God of infinite love for his son to give him up to save a people who didn't even care about him. That's how much human life is worth to God. That is why I stand up here and say, if you've had an abortion, if you know someone who's had an abortion, God has that kind of love for that person. Did he love that baby? Yes. Does he love that mother? Still. Come to Jesus. He's waiting to give you grace, to give you mercy, to give you peace. He's not shutting you out. He's not pushing you away. He's not keeping you away from him. He loves you and wants you to come home. Prodigal son, prodigal daughter, if you will just come down the road, the father will meet you halfway running. Come and find peace. Come and find comfort. Come and find forgiveness. Because a human life is valuable. It has innate value because it's made in the image of God. And it has demonstrated value because God loves you enough that he gave his son to save you. That's how much he values humanity. So first, that's the way we should see the unborn, and, and, and even those facing euthanasia. Now, I, I will mention them as I go, but like I said, it's, that's not legal in the United States yet. So the bulk of my time is going to be spent on abortion this morning. 
But the way that we should see anyone from womb to tomb is a human being made in God's image. Now, how should we treat human beings made in God's image now that we know they are human beings made in the image of God? They're deliberate creatures made in the image of God, male and female. See, when I was reading these quotes at the beginning of the day, see, Margaret Sanger knew that the unborn children were humans. But she viewed them as a weight holding the human race down. She viewed them as an inconvenience, as a problem. She even went so far as to say there are specific humans that we want and specific humans that we don't want. We can base it on all kinds of different things. All of them evil, by the way. But she said, we want some humans, but not others. She viewed babies as a problem. She viewed children as a problem. She viewed them as an evil. How should we as Christians see them? We should see them as our responsibility and as our blessing. Even that kid who drives me crazy, he's a blessing. Yep. He sure is. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now I want to draw a distinction between the active voice and the passive voice here. Um, that he says, my substance being yet unformed. This is not technically passive. But it's strongly insinuating, and obviously this is the meaning, since the psalmist is the one writing this, that the substance is going to be formed. The substance is going to be formed. Formed by who? Formed by God. So briefly back to what we just talked about, his identity is not what's being formed, it's merely his substance, as will be made clear shortly. The days were written in the book. The days were fashioned for me. Written by who? Fashioned by who? By God. And why? Why did God do this? Why does God plan this life out? Do you know that God had a purpose for you? When you were conceived, God had a purpose for you. I cannot look into God's books. I do not know why some lives end when they do. And this does not negate the effects of the fall. Okay, listen, if you go back and you read your Bible, it's the beginning of the year, now's a great time to start a Bible reading plan if you haven't yet. Okay, January's not even over. You can jump on it. Do it. You should. In chapter 3 of Genesis, humanity took a massive tumble. That not only were we spiritually affected, we were physically affected. That birth became difficult. Pregnancy became difficult. Childbearing became difficult. There are all kinds of problems with it now. Sometimes children make it to birth and they have issues. Sometimes children don't. That does not negate what is said in this passage. I don't know why some things happen and some things don't. 
I don't understand it. And I may never, this side of glory. But I do know that God is good. And that is beyond debate. And I do know that that good God has a plan when a child is born. He has a future for them. He has their days written in his book when as yet there are none of them. Do you know that God doesn't just see you as who you are today? He sees you as the totality of who you are from womb to tomb. He even sees you as the you that ain't you yet. He sees 50-year-old Josh. He sees 70-year-old Josh. He sees 150-year-old Josh. Are you going to live that long? Probably not. 150-year-old Josh is Josh in glory. He sees me then, too. That's who I am. That is my substance, yet unformed. That I'm still being formed. I'm still being made. That God sees the totality of who I am and he sees the totality of the plan he has for my life. All the dips, all the hills, all the valleys, all the peaks, all the the troughs. He sees all of it. And because of that, I view my child as a responsibility. Because God doesn't just see my days. He sees hers. And let's not even talk just about children. I view you as my responsibility. And you as my responsibility. And you as my responsibility. And biblically, you should view me as your responsibility. Why? Because God has put us on this earth to live in community with one another and look out for each other. That's why biblically hospitality is such a big thing. That's why the, the, the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is why uh, in Genesis chapter 4, when the first murder occurs, God comes out looking for Cain And says, where is Abel your brother? And Abel says what? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the resounding answer from God is? Yes! Yes! You are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for looking out for them and for protecting them and for loving them and for guiding them. That is why in the New Testament we get chapters like Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus says if your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Look out for one another. Care for each other. Protect one another. Help each other. Help heal one another. Show grace to one another. Because we are each other's keeper. From the womb to the tomb. And the reason that today, this Sunday, we focus so much on the unborn is y'all, they can't speak for themselves 
They can't raise their hand as, they walk, as their mother walks into Planned Parenthood and says, hey, I would prefer not to die today. They can't say that. They are our responsibility and they are our blessing. Psalm chapter 127, 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You know, in 2019, people cast a side eye at folks who walk around with big families. Oh my gosh, I can't believe they would bring that many children into the world. There's already billions of people on this planet. We barely have enough food and space and there's global warming and all this. How dare you do that? So I'll tell you how. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children are a good thing. I read an article the other day that it was... uh, the, the population in the United States for the first time, there are not enough children being born to reach the replacement rate. That more people are dying than are being born. And the writer of the article, I can't remember, a good guess is the New York Times. I don't know. They're trying to figure out why is this happening? Why has our birth rate declined so much? This is making life hard. And my response was, really? You really want to know where all the children have gone? Let me direct you to the abortion clock that shows you how many children are aborted every minute of every day. That's where they've gone. The children are a blessing. Children of every color and every socioeconomic level. White babies are good babies. Black babies are good babies. Asian babies are good babies. Native American babies, good babies. South American babies, good babies. Arab babies, good babies. Jewish babies, good babies. Rich babies, good. Poor babies, good. Middle babies, good. Any baby class that I left out, good babies. View them as such. They're worth it. Whether they're yours, whether they're somebody else's. The Bible says that we're to view children as a responsibility and as a blessing. Not as dead weight. Not as human weeds. Not as waste. Not as a problem to be eliminated. But as a blessing of God to be respected and enjoyed. If you can, consider fostering. Consider adopting. There is nothing that shows you value a human life more 
than saving one. And both of those are, are doing that. If you can't do that yourself, support adoptions. There are folks all the time, there are Christian agencies all the time that, that need funding to help, able, to help able couples adopt children because it's expensive. Help that. Give to that. Find a crisis pregnancy somewhere. There's actually one that just opened in Louisville. There's, there's one in Augusta that counsels women away from abortions and toward Jesus and toward life. Give to one of those. Volunteer at one of those. Do something. Pray. The greatest of things that you can do. But view children as valuable because they're made in the image of God. View them as a responsibility. View them as a blessing. And view yourself as valuable enough that Christ died for you. The ultimate show of the value of human life. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you today.